Hello friends and welcome back to Deep Point, an extra podcast from Emerging Cricket where we go into more depth on an issue that we didn't have time to cover on the regular Friday show. This time we're joined by Emerging Cricket's Netherlands correspondent Rod Lyle to talk about the ongoing upheaval in Dutch cricket. Welcome Rod. Hi Nick and welcome everybody. Now, you've written a series of articles outlining the comings and goings of the drama over the last few weeks, which I recommend our listeners check out. But for those just hearing about it now, let's wind back to what uh, really set things off, or at least the <laughs> set off the latest round of drama, which was the sacking of the CEO, Milner van Not, who was turfed out a few weeks back now, just 10 months into a contract and very soon after the T20 World Cup, but supposedly not related to that. Um, so what's going on with that? And was the decision anything to do with on-field performance or was it uh, you know, internal politicking? No, I don't think it was a direct result of what happened uh, in the UAE at all. It all came to a head, well, and kind of out of the blue at the end of October when the KNTB announced, strictly speaking, that they had agreed not to extend the contract of Melina van Nort, who, as you say, had been in post for just 10 months as CEO of the KNCB. This came, I think, as a bolt from the blue. Uh, as people immediately pointed out, it was the fourth dismissal of a CEO in seven years by the KNCB. And it immediately attracted a lot of criticism from a number of clubs. There was a an online uh, call between members of the board and club representatives at which it became clear that the board had been split on the issue. The chairman, the new chairman who took over in April, uh, Jürgen Delfos, made clear, as I understand it, that he had not supported the decision not to extend Van Nott's contract. And the clubs then were so dissatisfied with, with, with the board's explanation and with a number of other issues, that they requisitioned a special general meeting, which under the KNCB constitution, 10 member clubs can do. And that happened the day after the online discussion between the board and club representatives. So, yeah, I mean, it generated a lot of heat and opposition, really, from the moment that the announcement was made. So what was the official reason given for Van not being dumped? Well, initially, there was no, certainly in the public domain, there was no initial explanation. And then mm. the club got a letter from Robert Vermeule, the secretary of the KNCB, saying that it was difficult. They weren't really going to go into detail because this was a personnel issue and they weren't at liberty to say what was in the personnel dossier. However, when the appointment had initially been made, According to Fermola, there were three priority areas, reversing the decline or growing the game in the Netherlands, reversing the decline of, of cricket in the Netherlands, marketing and sponsorship, and the optimization of the internal organization of the KNCB, and that the board had come to the conclusion that insufficient progress had been made on those three areas which is, in my view, palpably nonsensical, ludicrous. Dutch cricket has been in decline for 35 years. So to say that a new CEO has failed to turn things around in 10 months um, <laughs> doesn't look like an extremely convincing argument. Sponsorship has been a major problem for the KNCB since ABN AMRO, the bank, ended their sponsorship in, I think, from memory, 2014. 
And in fact, Milner van Nort had secured for the first time for years a shirt sponsor for the national men's team for the UAE and going forward into the remaining Super League matches. And in fact, there's been quite a bit of marketing of Dutch cricket via live streaming, for example, over the past season. So at least two and arguably all three of the grounds on which the board claimed that insufficient progress had been made were simply ludicrous, which leaves you thinking, leaves one thinking, it certainly left the unhappy clubs, clubs that were unhappy with the decision, thinking that there must have been some other reason which the board was not prepared to admit in public. So what what did the clubs think was going on? Because if the official reasons, which, as you say, I mean, she's 10 months into a tenure, it's a bit ridiculous to complain she hasn't turned around decades of of decline uh, already. But, um, yeah, I mean, clearly there's got to be something else going on. Why did they do this and what do the clubs argue is, is the problem? Well, the clubs have the clubs have not really said what they think the other reasons might be. There have been various dark hints. Um, one has to be a little careful about what one says, since one does not want to wind up facing the the, defam- the defamation lawyers. But it's fairly clear, for example, that the board has form on this matter of arbitrary dismissals. Milner van Nott's predecessor, Jaap Vols, was let go without any explanation really from the board as to why. And Amber de Groot, who was a, a very successful marketing manager, was similarly um, let go, despite the fact that Vals, who was still the CEO at the time, was strongly recommending that her contract be continued. So the board has form in this regard. And what underlies all of this, what the real underlying problems are, is far from clear. But I think it is clear that, that all is not well. And that was certainly the view which the dissident clubs took in the general meeting last week, the special general meeting last Wednesday. It's fair to say that there is that there is a counter view and that there are clubs who are prepared to speak out in favour of the board, in favour of the majority of the board who were in favour of ending Milner van Nott's contract. VRA, VOC, ACC, all leading clubs in Amsterdam and Rotterdam were strongly in support of the majority view and not prepared to go along with criticism of the board, which they described as negativity and opportunism. Well, if it's opportunism, what is the opportunity? What are they trying to do? That was far from clear. <laughs> right. But, but I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say that opinion is divided on this issue and on a wide range of other issues. One of the things that was striking about the meeting on the 1st of December, the special general meeting, was that much of the discussion remained at a very abstract level. And everybody was prepared to agree that what we all want is the best for Dutch cricket. But as Jürgen Delfos, the new chairman, observed, there's a lot less agreement on on what that actually means and what radical steps need to be taken if, in fact, Dutch cricket is going to going to grow back in the direction, at least, of where it was in the mid-'80s. There are all kinds of arguments about what has gone wrong, why Dutch cricket has declined in the way that it has. Not all of the factors, obviously, are within the control of the KNCB. There's much more competition from other sports, much wider range of other sports, much greater competition from 
a lot of other activities. And people, I think this is something which is not confined to the Netherlands, people have less time. They're less willing to devote entire days to playing cricket. They want shorter formats. So if you start to dig down into what the argument is really about, then the argument could in part be about the sorts of decisions which need to be taken in order to grow the game, to bring new people into cricket, to attract new, in the ICC's favourite word, markets, but markets of actual players rather than simply viewers, audience. The Super League undoubtedly looked as if it was going to be an opportunity to promote the game more widely. The fact that the Ireland series back in the summer was televised on Dutch free-to-air television for the first time really ever in the in the long history of Dutch cricket was a major turning point, potentially a major turning point. And there are at least two, possibly three big series coming up next summer in what will presumably be the last summer of the Super League with England playing in the Netherlands, the West Indies playing in the Netherlands, and probably Pakistan. So, I mean, there are big opportunities there. And as one of the speakers last week said, this is the last real opportunity to project Dutch cricket to that wider television audience, which is certainly one aspect of how one might succeed in promoting the game. Uh, One of the successes, at least to a degree of the past 12 months has been the KNCB's increasing live streaming of domestic league cricket. And the clubs are slowly embracing that, not without the odd glitch, it has to be said, but they're buying into the opportunity to live stream cricket. But that only reaches people who are already interested. That's not going to On the whole, I think that's not going to attract an entirely new public. So there needs to be a lot of creative thinking. And it doesn't help then when the evolution of policy is interrupted by constant personnel changes and sackings of CEOs. It just, it doesn't make sense. It just does not make sense. Well, you talked about the Super League and the TV broadcasting of that. And uh, one of our previous episodes kind of touched on the way that the Dutch are splitting off the broadcasting side, as it were, from the rest of cricket into a separate company. And Betty Timmer was involved in that. And I guess reading the tea leaves of the most recent drama, Timmer uh, um, Timmer isn't necessarily directly involved, but her shadow sort of uh, is cast over the whole thing in terms of which clubs are supporting Fan Not and which clubs are trying to get rid of her. And so where does Timmer fit into all this? And how, how does that relate to the splitting off of the TV rights into the BV company, as it was called? Well, we saw during the week that Betty Timmer was very unhappy about what she called my extremely one-sided coverage of the issue. And she put her own case very strongly and we published that. Her line would be that she has nothing to do with any of this and that it has nothing to do with the BV, which is the wholly owned subsidiary, which the KNCB set up, not just for television, but to run its big home events. And the, the Super League was clearly the trigger for that. And there's a question about whether the BV has any point at all once the Super League is gone. But the relationship between the KNCB and the BV has been a matter of debate and a matter of concern for for some of the clubs. And it was named, I mean, and there were a number of issues relating to the BV, which were named by the clubs petitioning for the for the general meeting, the establishment of the company itself, 
um, but also the fact that Betty Timmer had been appointed as CEO without any application process at the point at which she stood down from the chair of the KNCB. All of that, I think, was regarded as less than entirely wholesome by some of the clubs. Um, and it undoubtedly has fed into the general sense of dissatisfaction, which then came to a head with the sacking of Milena van Nott. It's very hard to see, I think, exactly how all of that has played out. It's harder still to express it without attracting the interest of the lawyers. So I'm being, I'm being extremely <laughs> careful. But it has certainly fed into the dissatisfaction of some club chairman and administrator. And it, as you rightly say, some of Ms. Timmer's strongest supporters when she ran for the chair back in 2015, um, and full declaration, I was part of the ticket um, which she led, which won a contested election. So this is your fault. Um, I'm not prepared to admit to that. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time, <laughs> which I've sometimes said should be on my tombstone, <laughs> which some people may be chiselling even as we speak. Um, but, but um, yeah, I mean, it's extremely complex. And in the nature of these things, not all of it is visible to the naked eye. And daft decisions daft and indefensible decisions, I think I would want to say, like the termination of Melina van Nott's contract, do nothing to help the situation. Yes, and I guess people like Stephen Lubbers ranting in the Dutch press about how terrible all the opponents of, of the board are uh, probably don't help either. Uh, what's going on with all this sort of bomb throwing? And, you know, I mean, I look at the situation here from Australia and, and, and from someone who's you know, interested in the Dutch cricket team and a lot less interested in the Dutch uh, club system. Why do you think these people are, are so bitterly fighting over what, you know, to me, seems like pretty trivial matters in terms of, you know, wh- wh- why is it such a big deal? Like, what's, uh, what is the core issue here? Not to answer that directly immediately. I think it is undoubtedly true that one of the saddest aspects of what's happened over the past month is that it has distracted attention from what I'm calling the debacle in the desert, what happened with the men's team in the UAE. And there's a very obvious contrast between Ireland's reaction to a slightly smaller debacle that they had in in the UAE, where they have instituted an inquiry into what went wrong, whereas the Dutch have simply imploded into infighting about internal matters. What I haven't said so far is that part of the fallout from that video conference between board representatives and the uh, club representatives uh, back at the beginning of November was that two members of the board resigned, and one of them was the vice chairman, Ant Mulder, who was responsible for high performance on the board. So... His departure and the CEO's departure have left a gap where serious thinking about high performance and low performance um, (laughs) ought to be. There have been no, certainly no successful calls, no overt calls for an inquiry into what went wrong, the preparation, which I think by everybody's a consensus of agreement was less than ideal. Now, again, there are there are underlying reasons for that, in part to do with the fact that a big part of the core of the Dutch team 
um, are players with county contracts, which means that they are not available a lot of the time. And we're going to see, we may see more um, fallout from that uh, next year with the T20 qualifier in, in Zimbabwe, which is right in the middle of the English county season. So that has undoubtedly been a byproduct of all of the current mess that there hasn't been any serious discussion of what went wrong and how we avoid it happening in future. Instead of which, as you say, bombs have been thrown. Stephen Libbers suggested in that newspaper interview that it was all Jürgen Delfos, the chairman's fault. And Betty Timmer suggested in her reply to my most recent article that it was all Milena for Knott's fault, neither of which I think can easily be sustained. There's certainly no evidence for either of those allegations. And it does suggest that people are pretty concerned to throw the blame away from where you might logically think about laying it. Yes, yeah, so clearly there's a lot of um, very strong disagreements, we can put it that way. The special general meeting, as you said, didn't really talk about any of the specific issues, which makes it kind of hard to read what's going on. And, and um, yeah, more pertinently, they didn't even talk about any of the on-field performance, which you would think is probably, you know, <laughs> most people would think is supposed to be the most important aspect here. But it was raised in the meeting by one club representative, <laughs> um, and pretty rapidly kicked into the long grass. Right. So, yes, it, it seems they'd rather be navel-gazing at the moment. Um, they did agree to mediation uh, between the two, I guess, factions. So, what's going on with that? You know, what's the next step? And <laughs> is there any hope for, uh, you know, a resolution? Well, there are now two two vacancies on the board. At the point at which the board made the decision not to continue Milner Fanot's contract, there were seven board members. Two had resigned, allegedly because of the extremely distressing allegations that were made by the clubs against the board. You can read that however you, you like. Um, so it's now a board of five with two vacancies. And there was some pretty severe criticism in the general meeting by the majority's supporters of the fact that Jürgen Delfos, the chairman, had made public his dissent from the decision to terminate Ms. Van Nott's contract. So it's clear that there are some sharp divisions in a board which is already below strength, which is now below strength. So there are a number of questions which arise from that. One of the questions is how can a divided board be brought together? And the other is, how can candidates be found to fill the vacancies which will result in a more harmonious board? Given the uh, extent to which positions have been taken and lines have been drawn and allegations have been thrown around, it was fairly obvious that that couldn't be done without some outside assistance. There were two possible ways of doing that. One, bringing in a so-called committee of wise men or wise persons from within the cricket community. And the objection to that was that actually nobody in the cricket community is neutral. Well, it, it is Christmas, though, so you, you, know, you, you want your wise men coming in with some, some gifts. Well, yes, yes. But I think they've decided to go for one wise person from outside. Jürgen Delfos said in the meeting that he would 
approach the Dutch Olympic Committee, you know, say NSF, to suggest a possible mediator. The meeting suggested that in the present circumstances, he should not do that on his own, and that the former chairman of the KNCB, whom he had called in to chair the meeting last week, uh, Mark Usselbergs, who was chairman in the in the noughties and, and uh, early 2010s, that they should together approach NSA-NSF. No announcement has yet been made about what that mediation is likely to look at, look like, but there was a general agreement in the meeting that it should not take forever, that it needed to be done quite quickly. Because as some of the club representatives were saying, there are Super League series not far off and some important decisions, including financial decisions, are going to have to be made and we need a functioning organisation. The moment we have an organisation without a CEO, my understanding is that Jürgen Delfos as chairman is kind of doing a lot of the CEO, what the work that would normally be done by a CEO because there's nobody else to do it. The board has no representative for high performance and international cricket at the moment. So whoever is responsible for this crisis, it clearly is a crisis of fairly major dimensions. And a mediator, A, is going to have to work pretty quickly and B, is not going to have an easy task. I think it would be fair to say. The divisions are really quite deep. Well, just on that, you know, there is a timeline because the next general meeting or the, you know, the regularly scheduled one is coming up very soon. Was the idea to have the mediation done before then or still be ongoing? Because, you know, the next general meeting is going to clearly uh, set the tone for what's going to happen over the next uh, you know, six months to early in 2022 when there's still a decent amount of cricket supposedly uh, set to happen for the Dutch men's team at least. Well, there are normally two general meetings a year in April and December, and the December general meeting is now a week away, and we haven't had an announcement on, on mediation. So it's looking increasingly unlikely that there will be an outcome in time for the meeting on the 14th of December. The next meeting where, unless they call another special meeting, the next meeting where new board members could be elected would normally be in April. And Amit Paruleka, the treasurer, is due to stand down in April. So that's the plan was that Moody Alaraka, who came onto the board in April, would take over the treasurer role from Paruleka. It's possible to have acting board members. When, when Jakob Jan Esmeyer, the other one who, who has resigned now, when he came onto the board last year, he was appointed to the board, as it were, by the board itself. And his appointment was then confirmed by the general meeting a few months later. That's not strictly within the constitution, but in the present circumstances, it might be a healthy way of doing things. If there were people who, A, were willing to serve, and B, who were generally agreeable to all the parties... Because we need a functioning board. There's no question that the KNCB needs a functioning board. And there needs to be, and we haven't talked about this at all, but another of the elements in all of this is the relationship between the board and the staff. Not just the CEO, but all the staff who work to the CEO. I mean, they now have no direct leader or protector, it has to be said. And the relationship I know from my from experience from the time that I was on the board, that 
the relationship between the board and the staff is quite a delicate one. And again, I'm sure this is not confined to to Dutch cricket or to only cricket in the Netherlands. It's it's a general problem. How do a a governing body and its staff work together around an agreed set of policies? It helps clearly if the staff are able to trust the board if the staff are free of bullying and intimidation, and if there is a general sense of teamwork between the board and the staff. I know, as I say from experience, that that is not easily obtained, but it can be obtained given goodwill and an understanding of the boundaries on both sides. And sometimes that is present and sometimes it isn't. But that's undoubtedly something that they all ought to be working towards and we outsiders ought to be encouraged. Well, and so there's the problems for Dutch cricket, but I guess looking a bit further down the line, if the chaos continues, you know, how much of a risk is there of ICC intervention? Because nominally the ICC is supposed to crack down on uh, you know, boards <laughs> imploding in general circumstances like this. Yeah, I think that's I think that's an interesting question. I think it would be fair to say that in general the ICC has been a lot more hands off for the last decade or so with one or two notable exceptions has been more hands off than it was when the global development program was in full cry early in the century up to about 2010 up to the uh, the Gang of Three coup, when the Global Development Program and the High Performance Program were dynamited, basically, because they were costing too much money, which members of the ICC board thought should be going elsewhere, to put it gently. <laughs> um, so back then, when Richard Doan was ICC High Performance Manager and the Global Development Program was a lot more active, there was a lot more oversight and a lot more intervention, either from head office in Dubai or via the regional office in London, in the internal affairs of even the top associate members. Never, I'm sure, the full members, or almost never. So that there was a lot of scrutiny of governance, and associate members were lent on to produce governance models which the ICC proposed and which I think it would be fair to say no full member would ever be prepared to accept. So that's no longer true. Whether it will ever come back, I don't know. But the ICC is much less interventionist, I think it would be fair to say. So what the point would be at which the ICC would say, hang on a minute, guys, you know, you are making idiots of yourselves. And if you don't sort yourselves out, we will come and sort you out ourselves. My sense is we're nowhere near that point. Well, yes. I, I mean, yeah, Kenya's board got dissolved by the government over a year ago, and I don't think they've had a board since then. And, I mean, maybe everyone at the ICC has just forgotten they exist, but, uh, yeah, it, it does seem like there is little interest in um, <laughs> enforcing any of the standards that the boards uh, supposedly are, are held to. To be fair, to a degree that's healthy in the sense that you don't want the global organisation prescribing a template of how you must run your affairs, regardless of your local circumstances. And, you know, we will come in and put the administrators in if you don't conform to our idea of what good governance is. I think there's a sense in which that is right, except when things go wrong. And, well, the other side of that is how much any outsider, any real outsider, could 
quickly come to terms with that mysterious thing, which is Dutch cricket culture, is itself an interesting question, because it's a very complex and strange beast, I think it would be fair to say. Well, uh, I think for fans of Dutch cricket, uh, that's not too much of a surprise. Um, It's maybe not the most uplifting way to end, but I think it's probably the most accurate in terms of just this uh, murky situation. But uh, I I thank you for attempting to shed some light on it, Rod. It's a pleasure. Uh, Let's hope we don't have an occasion to do this soon. (laughs) Yes. uh, Well, well, I mean, you know, good news never sells, right? So if if they just resolve everything quietly, uh, we probably won't be talking about it, will we? No, exactly. And and there's part of me that actually hopes that will be the case. In fact, a very large part of me hopes that that will be the case. Well, thanks a lot, Rod. Uh, We'll talk soon, I'm sure. It's a pleasure. And see you. Bye. On behalf of the team at Emerging Cricket, thanks for tuning in and remember that you can of course subscribe in the usual audio apps for regular podcasts, keeping you up to date with news from all over the world of Emerging Cricket. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for loads more great content. Bye for now.